Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. Each day, more and more of our national political norms fall away. Our national leadership is at best a moral vacuum, at worst a corrosive force, a kind of autoimmune disease eating the very fabric of our country. The events of the past several weeks should remind us it does no good to hold the Pollyannish belief that it will all be all right, that we've been through this before, and that the democratic institutions that Madison and the founders designed and the moral framework upon which they are built can withstand anything that we face. We like to think, based on past crises, that our systems are strong, enduring, resilient. Maybe. But there's no guarantee that it will last forever. After all, the Roman Republic lasted for 500 years and then collapsed. It collapsed for many reasons similar to the issues and choices we face today. In what is still, at least for the moment, a representative democracy, we have the power to shape that fragile republic. Putting all of this in the historical context of the fall of the Roman Empire is University of California professor Edward Watts. He is a professor of history at the University of California, San Diego. He's the author and editor of several prize-winning books, including his latest Mortal Republic, and has taught Roman and Byzantine history for nearly 20 years. It is my pleasure to welcome Professor Edward Watts to Radio Who, What, Why. Edward, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad to join you. You have been, as as I mentioned in the introduction, you've been looking at this, studying this, understanding it for 20 plus years. Talk a little bit about how all of this has taken on a very different cast in light of the events of the past several years. I think that um, what, what we've seen, especially in the last probably decade, uh, is a willingness by our politicians to play at the margins and exploit sort of for short-term gain um, the breaching of social and political norms. And I, I think there's a couple of things that are particularly alarming about this. Um, the, you know, the issue that for the moment that sort of jumped out at me as a sort of turning point was the decision to essentially stonewall the Merrick Garland nomination for really no reason except for the short-term gain that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in Congress thought that they could get. Um, And this is, I think, particularly corrosive, as you mentioned, because it, it undercuts the very basis of what our republic is supposed to be. And as those norms have fallen away, talk a little bit about why that's important, particularly as you look at at what happened in Rome and how the corrosive effect of norms falling away over a hundred year period really had the disastrous effect that it had. I think the uh, example that Rome provides to us is particularly useful to the United States for a couple of reasons. I mean, the first reason, of course, is that when the founders sat down and tried to figure out what what system of government would work best for the United States, uh, they immediately latched onto political theorists writing about the Roman Republic during the Roman Republic, and so we are the we are in a sense living in a political system that is the the child of the Roman Republic, very deliberately so. Um, but on the other side. Um, what we see with the Roman Republic is an incredibly robust Republic that nevertheless declined and ultimately fell because of these very short-sighted decisions. Um, But it wasn't just one individual or one decision that did it. This isn't um, the 1930s where young Republics like the Weimar Republic fell apart because of the charismatic uh, 
um, actions of an individual. This is instead an old and robust political system that we live in. And what that does in Rome and what, or what that did in Rome and what that does in the United States is it, it encourages a kind of complacency and an assumption that the Republic will last forever. And in Rome, what you see are politicians who in essence decide that a political norm that has held for hundreds of years should be discarded or can be discarded because it serves their own short-term individual political interests. That's not how we've behaved before in the United States. The other broader context is the way we look at it in terms of the economy, the sense that creative destruction is so much a part of what we take for granted in economic terms and the displacement of incumbents by new systems and new ideas and new companies is something that we have come to take for granted. And I'm wondering if we're not applying the same ideas to our view of government today. I think that's a really good point. Um, I think this idea that all disruption is good, uh, you know, it doesn't, it, maybe it works in some corporate spheres, but it doesn't work politically. Um, you know, a political system indoors in large part because people are used to it and they understand the rules and they understand what the benefits of sort of winning a political uh, contest will be. And they also understand what the consequences of losing it will be. And when those rules disappear, uh, people don't know how to evaluate their actions and they don't know how to make choices. Um, And in the Roman Republic, what you see is the thing that really undermines that Republic is the moment when the Republic seems to be unable to protect people who lose a political conflict. And then all of a sudden, um, those people have to resort to whatever means they have available to them to secure their lives and their livelihood. Uh, and so in that sense, disruption is, you know, it's, it's profoundly frightening um, to everybody because all of a sudden the system cannot protect people and it cannot hold. One of the things that we see with the fall of the Roman Republic, and you talk about how long it took, how long over over 100 years plus that the system was eroded. We're living in a world today where all of this is happening at hyperspeed. And it seems to me that we get to the Rubicon a lot faster in this way. Uh, I would say that we are probably at least 25 years into this this cycle. Um, I, you know, I, I think if we look back to the mid-90s and the way that um, Gingrich and the sort of new Republican um, majorities in Congress in 1994 uh, started behaving, you know, the, the uh, willingness to break with established conventions, you know, looking back to, say, the government shutdowns of 1995, this, has, this started a generation ago. Um, and, and so we're in the middle of it. But I think the thing that's particularly dangerous is when you you read these things congratulating, you know, the courts or congratulating um, the states for standing up and resisting what looks like an erosion of norms. Um, Every moment that that happens is good and it is a positive step, but it doesn't mean the crisis has passed. Uh, You know, I think what Rome shows is when you have an established republic that faces these stresses, it takes a very long time for the defenses of that you know, political organism to break down. Um, but we have to be vigilant and we have to basically eliminate the, the, 
malady. Uh, we can't just sort of trust that every small victory is the end of the crisis. How much do you think that the, the founders understood this as evidenced by their suspicion of political parties? I think that they understood this quite well. Um, you know, I, I think that they had seen in British politics, especially early 18th century British politics, um, the danger of party and how party could, in some cases, lead to civil strife uh, on partisan grounds because it provided a sort of mechanism to mobilize people quickly and in large ways. And I, I, part of the appeal, I think, that they saw in the Roman Republic is it had no political parties. It had political alliances, but these weren't permanent things. And the um, perhaps some of the strengths that they saw in the Roman Republic was the ability of a system to, in essence, sort of channel individual ambitions uh, and control them by keeping this on a kind of individual level. And their suspicion of, of party, I think, was in part reinforced by some of the um, political alliances that came at the sort of final stages of the Roman Republic that really sort of undermined the last defenses of the Republican system. Talk a little bit about the points at which, with respect to the Roman Republic, things might have been turned around, things might have been reversed. I think that there are uh, maybe three moments that we can look at and see um, the possibility that things could have gone differently. Um, the first of these was something that I think almost passed unnoticed when it happened in the second century. Uh, the Roman economy of the early second century, in essence, discovered finance. Um, and what you see is the same kind of thing that we've seen in the United States and the Western world in the last 30 years. Um, people who have access to financial instruments in the Roman Republic, as in the United States, can become fabulously wealthy very quickly uh, and in a way that is profoundly destabilizing. Um, and in the Republic and in the United States, this occurred at a time when regular people, you know, the vast majority of people living in the society, uh, see their sort of their wealth and their prospects stagnate. And this produced a lot of dissatisfaction that was bubbling through Roman politics in the 140s and 130s BC. And Rome just failed to respond. Now, this is a very difficult thing to respond to. You know, in a modern context, um, we understand it better than the Romans did, and we still can't really respond to this wealth gap. Um, but had Rome come up with a way to do this, I think the Republic never even would have faced the crises that it, that it did in the late second century and early, early first century. Um, I think another issue that is particularly, another moment that is particularly um, useful for us to think about was around the year 90, um, when Rome was faced with a crisis about whether to extend citizenship to Italians who had been coming to the city of Rome for almost two generations um, because their economic prospects were better in Rome. And this was demagogued by individual Roman politicians and ultimately resulted in a, a war between Rome and its Italian allies that um, spiraled into a Roman civil war and the uh, imposition, you know, the first moment in Roman Republican history where a general marched his army on the city of Rome to take power. I think if that crisis had been resolved differently, you never would have had the civil war that ultimately sort of really 
destabilizes the republic in the 80s and subsequently. One, one of the other things you talk about is the way cults of personality emerged in the, in the Roman Republic, particularly in, in, in stressful and difficult times. Yeah, that's, um, that's something that is particularly alarming as you move into the last phases of the Republic. Um, yeah, as the, the system becomes destabilized and as people begin to lose faith that the Republic can actually protect their interests, they start turning to individuals who they think can serve this, this purpose. Um, and so in the 50s, Pompey the Great, the, the uh, great Roman commander in general, he serves this role as a kind of stabilizing force in the city of Rome uh, to the point where many Romans believe that the, cis, the city cannot function without Pompey basically in charge of it. Uh, in the 40s, Julius Caesar plays this role. And again, you see um, riots and violence in Italy and in the city of Rome when Caesar's not there. Uh, that calmed very quickly when Caesar comes back to the city. Um, but the person who really figures this out and figures out how to sort of play this role in a permanent sense and in a permanent way is the first emperor, Augustus. And the reason that he's able to sort of to reign as emperor is because he figures this out and he figures out a way uh, to be the, the person who promises stability um, and promises protection uh, and can do it in a way that's enduring. And this is the foundation of his empire, the foundation of his power as emperor. One of the things that, that's so contradictory, and I suppose ironic about this, and, and it relates to our current climate, in, is that in a way, there is this desire for charismatic leadership as a way out, as a solution to the problem. And yet it is clearly the power and stability of institutions that is more the answer. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that um, that's the lesson that I think we should try to take. It's important for every citizen of a republic to occasionally step back and take a broader view of what's going on around them um, and understand that the best defense they have to remain politically free is to defend the system that is preserving their freedom. Um, and there is certainly a temptation uh, to turn to somebody who promises to make things better immediately. Um, you know, this is obviously something that we're seeing now uh, in the United States, in Brazil, in, um, you know, in Turkey. But that, that in a sense, is a t at best a temporary solution. Um, the, the long-term view should be to step back and defend the institutions that, we've, that we have inherited and that have made our country strong. Um, and so that means that, in, you know, instead of embracing an anti-Trump who can oppose Trump or embracing a Trump who can oppose Obama, um, what we need to do is embrace the system that allows for a sort of orderly transition uh, and an orderly sort of process of deliberation and debate. It doesn't feel good to do that. You know, it doesn't it doesn't feel like we're making a decision that has serious and profound consequences because it's a small decision. Um, you know, in essence, you're, you're voting to not reward people who behave badly and violate political norms. But in the long run, that's the play that will save our republic and allow us to feel protected and safe uh, and 
um, comfortable as citizens of a representative democracy. Right. I mean, there's also this aspect of a vicious cycle about it in, in that all of this and, and leaves itself so wide open for, th- for authoritarianism in that it creates this chaos, which then creates somebody to say, essentially, only I can solve it. Exactly. And the only I can solve it moment is the most dangerous moment in a republic. Um, because a republic allows, it, it requires um, citizens to elect people to represent their interests. And what the republic and what every republic throughout history has assumed is those representatives will reflect diverse viewpoints, but they will also work to establish a sort of compromise that then is binding because everybody's voices is everybody's voices are represented in that conversation that frames the compromise. When someone says, I alone can do that, they are claiming to represent your views, which is a very Republican idea, Mm -hmm. but they aren't facilitating compromise. And that means they exclude all of the views of people who do not agree with them. And that is, um, that's a cancer within a Republic because it seems Republican. Um, but in practice, it's the antithesis of what a Republic should be. Which raises the, the broader question of whether or not any of this can work in, in our modern society, whether there is a fatal flaw in the Republican system that in, in a world of 24-7 news cycles and, and things moving at hyperspeed and, and siloed tribalism, whether or not there, there is a fatal flaw in Republican government that simply can't work in the modern age. I think that that's a point that has been raised um, in republics throughout history. You know, I think it was a, a, a real vital a a real vital question in the 18th century as well. Um, now, you didn't have a 24-7 news cycle, but what you had was a, the ability to sort of produce very quickly political pamphlets and materials that could spread to a partisan audience. Um, and the founders were very aware of what that did in 18th century England um, and the sort of conflicts it produced. Um, in the Roman Republic, the ability of ideas and news and information to spread through the city of Rome um, it's not a 24-7 news cycle, but word can spread very quickly and events and oppositions can develop very quickly as well. And so I think we are moving faster, but I don't think the, the sorts of challenges we're facing are um, categorically different from what republics have faced in the past, N- nor are they categorically different from what our republic was designed to sort of buffer. I think what's different is the unwillingness of people, and here I think you know Republicans bear a lot of the, the blame, um, the unwillingness of people to use the Republican structures that are supposed to promote compromise to actually come to compromises. Um, I think that there's an unwillingness, at least in part of the United States polity, to find compromises on issues. And that that's different, I think. Yeah, I guess it's important to try to perhaps try and understand where that happened exactly. What was the tipping point moving away from that compromise and, and in order to get back to it ultimately? Yeah. And I think there um there, I think the Roman Republic offers some pretty scary examples. You know, the, Rome did come back to a basically a model where 
compromise was um, facilitated, but it was an authoritarian model. Um, because ultimately what had to happen was somebody had to be responsible for the state functioning. And I think what we have right now is a unwillingness among certain politicians to um, acknowledge that things have to happen in the United States. You know, we can't just drift for forever. Um, uh, what I hope can happen is that there will be a sort of um, snap back among the voters to acknowledge that, yes, things need to happen and they, there are policies that need to be enacted and there are changes that need to um, be recognized and government has a role to play in doing that. Um, and I hope it can happen within a Republican system. Talk a little bit about the end game in, in the Roman Republic and how it ultimately unraveled at the very end. So the end game for the last, say, 20 years of the Roman Republic involves this very basic tension between a state that must function um, and the desire of individuals to promote themselves. Um, and the tension becomes one of um, individual political figures trying to use the elements of the Republican system that are supposed to promote compromise to simply block their opponents. Uh, what this leads to is the mobilization of armed supporters and armies uh, and a series of civil wars that um, end up with one person taking charge by himself. I think that the, the process that, that we see unfold there is, is one in which the um, needs of citizens are asserted uh, and individual politicians try to meet those needs in a minimum way uh, in a fashion that encourages their own political standing and their own um, political fortunes. So I think what we see in the, the late republic is a process by which politics becomes individualized. There are a host of different people who are promising uh, that they alone can fix the problem. And politics becomes a, a sort of individualized tribalism where each, each group in the Roman polity is gravitating towards a specific individual who is promising to solve their problems. Uh, there's no way for a political system to mediate that kind of conflict. Uh, and that then becomes not a political conflict, but a military conflict. And the final stages of the Roman Republic sees what had been for centuries a set of issues resolved politically become a set of issues that can't be resolved in any way except through armed violence. And ultimately, when Augustus prevails in that armed violence, uh, there's no republic left. There's just Augustus, who alone promises to solve all the problems in the Roman state. And finally, knowing this history as well as you do, what worries you most? What single thing worries you most about our present moment? The thing that is really scary to me is the creeping of violence into our life, you know, into American life and into American political life. Because the rhetoric that has been deployed mainly on the right against um, people deemed to be opponents, it has become so vicious that people are now taking this, taking it upon themselves to act uh, against individuals and to start attacking individuals. Um, 
this doesn't ever end in a good in a good place. Uh, when violence, when violent rhetoric enters the Roman Republic, it it happens starting in the 130s. Political violence follows not even a year later. Um, rhetorical violence in a tense political environment leads to actual violence. And the more that violence metastasizes through society, the closer we are to armed gangs or, or even the military taking sides and starting the fight. Uh, this is profoundly dangerous. And the fact that um, everybody is not immediately running away from this kind of demonization of others, uh, this is really, really um, a difficult moment for us. Professor Edward Watts. Edward, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, thank you. I had a great time. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.